This is Heather McCoy's A face in the crowd. Whose face? I could be yours. Only on 88.9 FM Irvine. Irvine. 88.9 KUCI FM in Irvine, and you are listening to Heather McCoy's A Face in the Crowd uh, in Costa Mesa today, and um, I'm in my Unitarian church, and I'm actually uh, interviewing my minister, Reverend Karen Stroinoff, who is set to retire in July, and then she'll be active until June, so she kind of has a month vacation, and so I've been trying to attend every last one of her uh, sermons because she's been a special person in my life, and I just kind of wanted to get to know her better. Um, after the, each service, she has so many people that want to come up to her. I'm like, you know what? I don't think I really know her that well, so we're going to spend... It's a two-parter, so we're going to spend uh, this week with her and then next week with her as well. So, um, Reverend Karen Starnoff, welcome to KUCI. Thank you, Heather. It's nice to be here. <laughs> so, um, uh, first off, like... Unitarian Universalism is like a, religion, like a religion not a lot of people have heard of. I think most people might have come into contact it, with it during an episode of The Simpsons because it's often poked fun at or there's always like inside jokes that always make that show. And there's been numerous number of them. Is there like a website that has like a uh, count on that at all? I don't know of any count. I will tell you that the other place where Unitarian Universalism frequently comes in as the brunt of the joke is with the Prairie Home Companion and Garrison Keeler, who has made many very funny and uh, often astute observations. I, I don't get to hear that program nearly enough to, um, to actually pick that up, but that would be really cool if... Um, I, I really enjoyed his film that he did with the um, Perry Home Companion film, and it was like Lindsay Lohan's last film before it just kind of went to hell. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah. So, um, so um, what are some of the major tenets of the religion of universal and universal Unitarian Universalism? And is it really a religion, like some of people on the right might? claim? Well, that's a big question. We're, uh, let me start out with, first of all, some of the tenets, and then we can talk about why I believe it's a religion. Uh, first of all, we operate from a strong belief in freedom of religion and the idea that everybody should have the right to find for themselves a kind of faith that can inspire and inform their lives. And so we're very strong on not prescribing what truth is or what a person should believe, both within and without our own denomination. We actually operate much more than from a story about a set of principles by which we live or how we are in the world, and there are seven of them. And they start from the very individual and personal, such as having justice, equity, and compassion in our dealings with everyone we meet, and having respect for the inherent worth and dignity of every person. And they go to the absolutely universal or global with our seventh principle, which is respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are part. And what that really talks about is not only our interactions with other human beings, but with other sentient beings, with animals, with, with plants and foliage, and with the earth itself, and that we have an obligation to live in uh, accordance with uh, rules that will allow everyone to survive and thrive and be well. Um, 
Yeah, the, the, one of the things that struck me about the seven principles is, are they that different than, you know, the Bible, but it's just not been taken over by a certain sect that kind of militarized it and kind of made it angry and more rigid? Or, is, or how does that jive with the normal and Christian religion that, you know, the normal denominations that we have in the U.S.? Well, I think it goes beyond just the Christian religion to most world religions believe in love and respect and treating others in the way you would like to be treated yourself. So absolutely, I think our seven principles are reflected in most religious traditions. Probably the biggest difference we have from other Christian and many other world religions is that we don't have a story, a creation story, or a magical story. We don't have a prophet to whom we ascribe miraculous deeds and things like that. And so the difference is not in what we say about how we ought to live as much as it is in what we say about how we decide what we believe. Yeah, and I think going back to like the a prophet of some kind, we do believe like the Quran and the Bible, they're like sources, but they're no, nothing more than just that. Right, and we believe that every uh, religious source has something to teach us or something good to offer, but we think that we want to go beyond that, and we want to look at things like what comes from when within your own heart and your own life experience and your own understanding of what the world is about. We want to look at the prophetic voices of men and women uh, throughout history, not just the ones who have spoken as great religious leaders, but those who speak as uh, great social leaders and philosophers and, frankly, artists and musicians and everybody who speaks to the beauty and wonder of life. And I think some of the sermons you bring up, some of the people that have been UU in the past, and I'm like, oh, really? I mean, it's kind of a it's kind of a big list with some of the more famous UUs that most people don't know about. Well, I don't know whether most people know about it or not, but Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, the great uh, 19th century author, and uh, he really was a philosopher as well as a poet and author, and he was a Unitarian. Uh, on the Universalist side, there were lots of women who, are who were suffragettes, who fought for women's rights, for temperance, for uh, equality, for the end of slavery. And a lot of those people uh, were Universalist. Uh, one that's been in the news recently and that isn't well known is uh, the man who first said the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And that was Theodore Parker. We attribute it, and Unitarian Universalists are happy to give credit to Martin Luther King Jr. for making that statement something that many, many, many people know about. But the truth of the matter is Martin Luther King Jr. came up with that out of his study of Theodore Parker, who was another 19th century transcendentalist Unitarian minister. And so with the um, aspect of social justice being so ingrained within our, our uh, churches, how does that, there's a lot of natural tension of that causes, of course, because not everybody believes in the same thing. And so when you try to take up an issue, for example, it 
we, we we have these meetings where we see if we want to actively get involved with something and it's two-thirds majority and it's kind of uh, there's a lot of strife involved with that. Has that always been the case how we just as a church describe if, or decide if we want to get into something or I think so. Yeah. I think that one of the things that's characteristic of Unitarian Universalists is that we love the open discourse, and it's most fun when not everyone is in agreement. If I say I like meatloaf and you say you like meatloaf, we ain't got nothing else to talk about <laughs> on that. So we have our best, uh, most energized uh, experiences when someone is there to say, yes, but what if you look at it this way? Or what if we consider that? And to go back to what you really were asking about the how do we decide what to get involved in, many of us worry a lot about disenfranchising the minority within our community. And we don't like to do that. So we're very careful when we take a stand as a congregation that we really have lots of opportunity for people to speak, to share their views, to be heard and listened to. And we often say, well, let's let all those who want to go off and work on this issue, but not take a stand as a whole congregation because we have others here who have a different way of looking at it. And, and some of those meetings, even though there is a little bit of strife and some kind of um, disagreement, we all kind of hug and make up at the end, and, and some really funny humor comes out of this. Uh, I think the last time we did this, uh, Sam was called a donut pusher, and so she made a shirt that actually said donut pusher on it. So it, it's kind of like a small town culture within the church. And uh, that brings me to kind of an, another point. Is there like... There's no UU mega churches or anything like uh, Pastor Hagee has in Texas or Trinity Broadcasting or anything like that? No, we're not quite that big anywhere, <laughs> but we do have several churches that have well over a thousand members and that are our version of the mega church. And of course, we have people who say, oh, it's just too big. I like my small church better. But I grew up in a very large, not a UU church. So I'm used to uh, a very large congregation, and I'm comfortable with that, too. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, too, is like a lot of people that aren't maybe familiar with UU um, would say, like, how do you become a minister? It's traditional grad school that you become a UU minister? How does that work exactly? Yes, I have a master's in divinity, which I earned through a school in Chicago called Meadville Lombard Theological School, which is affiliated with the University of Chicago, which is a very demanding graduate program. And I took half my coursework at the Divinity School at the University of Chicago, and half of it through the seminary, which is about two blocks off campus in Hyde Park in Chicago. It's traditionally a four-year program. It includes a nine-month or one year in the sense of school year internship and a full uh, three-month chaplaincy training program, and it's quite rigorous. 
Yeah, uh, that brings up another thing is your retirement. And then, like, it's kind of a strange process where you have a board that selects a new minister, and then the minister has to select us as well. Have you, when you got your, uh, when you got your graduate degree, did you come here right away as a minister, or did you go to another congregation before this? I had two years before I came out here. I was living, I lived almost all my life in the uh, greater Chicago area, northern Illinois. And I spent the first year after I finished doing what's called community ministry. And I focused on working on working with people who were homeless, with doing advocacy for children at risk, and doing a lot of interfaith work. All three of those are, are passions of mine. And then at the end of that first year of doing community ministry, I was called by one of the Chicago area churches that was in the process of looking for a, firm, for a permanent minister, and they needed what we call an interim minister, someone who works with the church in the ministerial role, but on a defined, limited period of time. And so I decided that I would go ahead and do that. And as soon as I started doing that, I realized how much I loved working with a congregation. So then I went into what's the search process. And at the end of that year, I came out here to California. Oh, okay. So this was your first prolonged stay in California at any particular time? Yes. Oh, wow. What was like the biggest change as far as... The climate. And it was a change for the better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I My parents moved to Colorado, and I don't know if Colorado is as harsh as Chicago, but it's it's fun. <laughs> it's not very fun. So um, what, what are some of the, going back to the church itself, what are some of the challenges that you use face uh, ahead one of the you may have some more but one of the ones that I might look at is it seems like we have an older congregation and it's just like how do you balance the older people that are coming out and the newer people coming in well that is an organizational problem that crosses all sorts of lines certainly yeah. from one religious organization to another but also all sorts of voluntary associations find that um I think it's an important problem to recognize and deal with. I do not at all think it is an unsolvable problem, and because it isn't a new problem, we know by definition that it's not one that means the organization can't go on. We here at Orange Coast have done a great job in the past few years of uh, bringing in some wonderful, very powerful young adults. You're one of them. Oh, thank you. And uh, we are, in a sense, uh, fostering the next generation that is moving into leadership roles. And I think that's the key. How do you how do you deal with it? Well, you make sure you have a welcoming environment so that people who are coming in that are different from the group that's already here, whether it's age or any other demographic you want to name, have a way to come into the positions of leadership and to doing the work of whatever that organization is. And then gradually it happens. And as people age, 
they get to say, you know, I can sit back now. I don't have to do all the work. There are these, all these wonderful people to do it. Let me tell you a quick aside story that oh, I sure. love. When my oldest son was about 20 years old and he was in college, he uh, came back home uh, one day for a visit, and he was very upset about something, and I can't remember now what it was, but something that was going on in the world that uh, he felt, and I was inclined to agree with him, we weren't dealing with very well. Mm -hmm. And he said in this very passionate voice, your generation has ruined it. You've just messed everything up. And now we, my generation, is going to have to fix it. And I remember thinking, oh, what a relief. <laughs> because I could remember 20 years before when I had felt that way about my parents' generation. And in one sense, it was a great relief to think, oh, good, there's someone else who can bear that burden for a while. Yeah, usually when I get frustrated with things, it's not generational. It's like mass consciousness. Like when I'm sitting on the 55 freeway trying to go north from Irvine, and I'm like, seriously, I mean, you can't think of like a monorail just like going right past us. I mean, it doesn't take that much imagination. And I've just had actually coming back from Sweden, like after I got done with that trip and I had zero traffic jams here, like the consciousness of Southern California. And then it's just kind of crazy that we put up with this and it, nobody says anything. It's kind of, it's, it's kind of a weird exercise. And like, I would say like, mass consciousness and that i think that's one of the things that um i like about the church is it seems like we're always a step ahead of everybody else um we're a welcoming congregation at the church and could you explain that yes uh we welcome people uh without regard to all those factors that are often discriminated against so first of all we welcome people regardless of their race or ethnic background. We welcome people regardless of their able-bodiedness or their age. We welcome people regardless of their sexual orientation or their gender orientation. And we want to be a place where everybody feels that this is comfortable and they're gonna be glad I'm here. Um, I think there are probably more areas in which we welcome people. Uh, we, we tend to have more trouble with people's political and social beliefs than we do with their lifestyles or their age or the other demographics. And I suppose that's really not too surprising because after all, we are an organization that says we have certain understandings about how people ought to relate to each other. And so those are the things we hold dear, and those are the ones that it's harder to say, it's okay with me even if you believe something that I think is absolutely wrong. Yeah, and the seventh principle about the respect and for independent web of existence of which we all are a part, that can be interpreted several different ways. And yeah, um, definitely. But, as, but but that's a key point. I think we're one of the denominations, and I think there's a sect of the Methodists that are another denomination that actually welcome LGBT people and don't try to put them in reform camp or like <laughs> he's like you're not going to be like this anymore, you know, and and like okay, 
<laughs> well, there are there are uh, other traditions, the United Church of Christ, certainly, and other liberal churches within denominations. The uh, uh, the the argument is always uh, possible with uh, some of these other groups with their more um, conservative elements within them, but uh, we just don't seem to have a conservative element, so yeah. I think we get by with that. But there are other places where there is a, a good degree of welcoming. And I guess the other challenges about being a welcoming congregation is the, that um, as awesome as this congregation is, it is mostly white, and it is mostly people with PhDs or uh, MBAs. I'm, I think I'm one of the only ones that have only completed an AA degree here. And so how do, how do you try to rectify welcoming people with all sorts of uh, educational backgrounds as well as ethnic minorities into the church? Well, I think you probably noticed the one that I left out, <laughs> which is uh, issues around class, which certainly education could be viewed as a subset of that. It is true that traditionally the Unitarians were well-educated, um, uh, upper-class people, and ironically, traditionally the Universalists were uh, working class and often were very prevalent in rural communities where uh, let's face it, farm workers are definitely working class yeah. uh, because you have to work very hard. My uncle was a farmer, and I know um, how arduous that is. So we have the tradition, but we're, this is one of the growing edges, is an expression I like to use, that we need to work on, that it's classism, and it is much harder to work on being truly open to that and so we're struggling with it yeah but there needs to be something we're struggling with so and that's not bad yeah and i don't know the map of every unitarian universal church but there is one in anaheim and i think i've been there once and it's not the greatest area of town so it's not like you're locating these things in gated communities and it's like why don't any you know poorer people come here i mean you're putting them in they're in you know different locations geographically you know, as far as social stratus and the well, neighborhood around not, it. This is very close to the part of Costa Mesa where people uh, who have far less uh, income oh, yeah. live. And uh, the church that I served in Chicago was very interesting. Um, when it was started about 60 years ago now, it was in a multi-ethnic but primarily European multi-ethnic uh, neighborhood of barely middle-class people. And over the years, the white flight to the suburbs occurred, and that neighborhood uh, became almost completely African-American and very poor, and there were many boarded-up places where uh, Homeless people would camp out. It was drug-infested. There were crack houses. It was gang-ridden. And the church refused to leave. It stayed there, and it was truly a bastion in that neighborhood. And I was so honored to be able to serve them for that year that I was there. Um, they didn't hold, let me tell you how bad it was. They held no meetings in the evenings in the church 
because it quite frankly wasn't safe. Once a month, the church board would meet, and nobody left that meeting alone. If someone had to leave early, male or female, someone else walked them out to their car because at night in that neighborhood, it wasn't safe. And one Sunday late afternoon, during the year I was there, there was a drive-by shooting and a gang member in the house across the street from the church was killed. So it was truly an urban church experience. They didn't have much of a religious education program because quite frankly, parents with young children didn't want to bring their kids to that place given the uh, degree of lack of safety that there was. And I wouldn't have done it either. When my kids were little, that would have had to take precedence. So, you know, it's... There are. There's a church in New Orleans that I've been to that's very inner city. There uh, are churches in most of our big cities, Unitarian churches, including in downtown L.A. There is a wonderful church that uh, is very much in either a barrio or uh, a neighborhood that has fallen uh, uh, fallen onto hard times. I think in the previous uh, responses to some of the questions that we've had so far, you were saying that the Unitarians and the Universals were two separate religions, uh, just to cover basis. I think we should expand on that somewhat. (laughs) Yeah, they were. The Unitarians came, uh, actually, they came over on the Mayflower. The forebears of the Unitarians came over on the Mayflower. And uh, Unitarianism, as we know it today, did not exist at that time, but the people who were coming over on the Mayflower were really the, the ancestors of those who eventually broke away from the church they founded in Massachusetts and became Unitarian. Uh, the Universalists were very active in England and at the end of the 1700s started uh, building up a presence in the United States. For well over 200 years, these two faith traditions existed with great common ground, but also some significant differences. And then in 1961, after 100 years of discussion, literally 100 years, although not ongoing discussion, Mm -hmm. but uh, they decided to merge and become the Unitarian Universalists. And so for the last 50 years, we're celebrating the anniversary this year. For the last 50 years, it has been a combined new single faith tradition. Yeah. um, So is that where the UUA comes in? Yes. And what is their role within the uh, individual churches? The The UUA is the Unitarian Universalist Association of Congregations, and it is the denominational um, headquarters, I suppose you'd say, but all the power in both our former traditions and our combined tradition rests in the congregations. So it's not that they are at the top and the power comes down, but rather the other way around. They are empowered by the congregations to do things. And every year uh, we hold a 
an annual conference at the end of June. And at that conference, business is conducted and decisions are made. And then the people who work, who staff the UUA, the association, go off to make those things come true, to put them into effect or bring them into being. Okay, and just if you're tuning in right now, um, I'm Heather McCoy, and I'm sitting with my preacher, uh, <laughs> Dr. Uh, Karen Stroinoff, and we're sitting in the church in Costa Mesa, and it's uh, echoing in here because there's no one around. Um, so I, I came across something actually in RE when I was teaching it uh, yesterday. Um, there's something called Christian universalism. What exactly is that different than what uh, AUU is? Are you talking about Christian universalism right now or historically? Um, we can do both. I don't know. <laughs> okay, well, let me, let me start from historically and work forward then. Historically, the universalists were a Christian tradition. Their argument was with the Calvinism of the day, and this would be two to three hundred years ago now, and the argument was that the universalists could not believe in a God who would damn some people to hell eternally before they were even born. And they believed that everyone could be saved or that there was universal salvation through Christ at that time. And so they were the universalists. As time has passed, the faith uh, belief system of the people who were universalists became more and more liberal and less and less traditionally Christian until there were some people who would call themselves universalists and now Unitarian universalists who do not espouse Christianity as their faith tradition at all. But there are still those who believe in our principles and the social movements and who love the communities that are part of our tradition who also consider themselves Christian in their, their personal belief system. Yeah. And they would be the current day uh, Christian universalists. Oh, okay. And uh, that wraps it up for this week. Tune in next week for another edition of Heather McCoy's Face in the Crowd. And uh, you've been listening to 88.9 KCI FM in Irvine. And stay tuned for, uh, liberal, for Liberals with Newhaw. And I'll see you next week.